Might be a lot of swearing, a lot of yelling, uh, a lot of noise. You'd probably be a little bit thrown off by it. It would be like walking into an aircraft hangar, maybe, and hearing the mechanics on the airplanes just yelling at each other, which you have to do if it's that noisy. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we're professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by the College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. For more than a century, the college has educated students to relentlessly pursue the art, science, and integrity of stories. They're committed to following First Amendment principles in a digital-first environment as they prepare democracy's next generation. Take a moment and imagine, in your head, the typical American newsroom. What do you see? For many people, you may be imagining something you've seen in a movie like Spotlight, or for some of you who are uh, perhaps a bit more seasoned among us, something like All the President's Men. In either case, following intrepid reporters in pursuit of the story. And for many of us, we're probably building the newsroom around the reporter and putting them in an era that we can relate to. We're probably not imagining the newsroom of a generation or two before any of that, the span from about World War I through the start of the Cold War, an era mistakenly believed by some to be slow or absent of innovation. And odds are we're neglecting others in the newsroom, and that we're lumping all those reporters together as though they're all the same, even though their work often involved vastly different skill sets and fulfilled different functions in the massive industrial undertaking that was the daily newspaper. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Will Mari, Assistant Professor of Media Law at Louisiana State University and author of the book, The American Newsroom, A History, 1920 to 1960. Will is kind enough to take us on a tour of a typical mid-century American newsroom and introduce us to the various roles performed by those in that newsroom. And along the way, he describes some of the major shifts experienced by the newsroom during this often overlooked period in American media history, while helping us to understand the promise and problems of the state of transition that today's newsrooms are themselves in. Will, welcome to the show. So I just, I absolutely love this book, and I learned so much about this era and about this topic, and I thought that I understood it to begin with, but it turns out not so much. For you, though, why this era? Why the, the 1920s through the 1960s? What is it about that time? Yeah, so it's kind of thought of as a stable, unchanging golden age. And I I tend to be a little suspicious of these these moments where nothing happened, because I know lots of things probably happened. And so <laughs> I was just curious about looking into this particular time period, mostly based on a hunch that maybe it was actually pretty busy and lots was going on. After, after all, you have you know, two world wars, the beginning of the Cold War. Uh, there's a lot of other history happening during this time period. And my advisor, Richard Kubowitz, was also a big supporter of investigating the supposedly golden age for journalism. Well, that makes sense. So, so let's take kind of a tour of this space, like the American newsroom at mid-century, right? We've got to pick a date. So maybe we'll, we'll stick right there in the middle, like the 1940s and the 1950s. So we're in the average newsroom 
And and this was interesting in your book. It's very specifically the average Midwestern newsroom. And so take take a minute to talk about that. Why why aren't we in sexy New York City? Why are we in Kansas City or somewhere like that instead? I think Kansas City and places like Oklahoma City and even Chicago and you know Minneapolis and St. Paul. These cities represent more of the typical newsroom city. Uh, Metropolitan newspaper would have at least 100,000 circulation, but it wouldn't be in the millions like a New York paper would be or LA paper might be, or a few Chicago papers, superior to Chicago as a second city. Um, but I really try to avoid, I try to avoid uh, making it too much about New York City, the story of the newsroom, because I feel like it's really a national story. And if you're trying to do a national history of a kind of space like a laboratory or a factory or uh, any other kind of works workspace, it's good to avoid like the one or two spots that get lots of attention anyway, which is great. I'm glad that people like Nikki Usher and Aurora Wallace study New York City and its newsrooms. That's really important. Uh, but uh, I love the idea of just walking into a newsroom in the middle of the country, in the middle of the day, uh, in the middle of the century, and just kind of experiencing what news was like when it was manufactured in those kinds of spaces. Sure. And are there big differences between, you know, like uh, this, uh, these papers in New York and in other parts of the country? Or is it just a matter of scale? Uh, scale. There's also a different attitude maybe about your competition. You know, there might be a couple other rival papers in town, but really, you know, you know everybody. And so it's much more of a community. So even if you're rivals with, let's say, the morning paper across town, you're the evening paper. Uh, it's not so much a life and death struggle as it is a it's a healthy competition. Uh, and so I think there's a different vibe, as the kids say, uh, with the newsroom, <laughs> the mid, mid-century, middle of the country, uh, still competition driven, uh, but maybe not quite as cutthroat and intense as you would find in New York. Sure. That makes sense. OK, so so we're in the newsroom. We're in the American newsroom. And yeah. just for, for listeners who, who don't understand, you know, this is surprisingly just one relatively kind of small part of a much larger building you know you see a, a news building and you assume the whole thing is is reporters running around but there are <laughs> lots of other departments you know the presses and the delivery dock and the people who work with that that equipment are there they're in that space another thing we notice when we look around this newsroom is i don't see anybody from advertising i don't see anybody from <laughs> circulation what's up with that where are those people well, they're a different part of the building. And I, I tell students that the newsroom's sort of like the cockpit in an airplane. I mean, the airplane is probably 99% not the pilots. So <laughs> it's good. You don't want them flapping the wings, you know, out there on the wings. That'd be a bad sign. Um, but the the newsroom space is the headquarters, the nerve center, kind of the computer, I guess, of this large factory uh, that was manufacturing newspapers as a product. Uh, another good metaphor is making milk. Uh, Michael Stamm's book, Dead Tree Media, talks a bit about this analogy that that the newspaper was very uh, prone to spoilage. So you would have breaking news from your rivals in radio and then TV. And so you really had to hustle to be competitive, even if you provided more of that analysis bit. But it's, it's separate from the other parts of the newspaper because it's supposed to be where the news gatherers and producers and editors all, all assemble. And I think the first thing you would notice is definitely how noisy it was, depending on the time of the day you're at. But let's say it's let's say it's a late morning or something like this, and you have a, a news a news meeting, a news conference. There might be a lot of swearing, a lot of yelling, uh, a lot of noise. You'd probably be a little bit thrown off by it. It would be like walking into an aircraft hangar, maybe, and hearing the mechanics on the airplanes just yelling at each other, which you have to do if it's that noisy. 
<laughs> sure. So so uh, we're in this room then, and we see like big sea of desks. Like it's all oh, of yeah. these desks, and those belong to the reporters, right? So maybe we should start there. What's yeah. it like to be a reporter in this era? I know it's it's forty years. It's a it's a big span of time. But yeah. what's it like to be a reporter in this time? How did they get here? What's their job like? And yeah, yeah start there. A lot of them would have ridden their bikes in or taken the bus and or carpooled. I mean, not everyone had a car, but let's say you drove your car. Maybe you're doing pretty well for yourself. You're like, a, I don't know, a 10-year veteran in the newsroom. Uh, mm-hmm. You've driven yourself, maybe a buddy into work that morning. Um, and the desk that you have is your space. You get to have that little chunk of space. It's sort of like if anyone's ever been to a, a software company, you know, like a programmer or some, some other person who was a tech worker has usually one small piece of real estate in this big sea of desks, and that is their spot. So they customize it. Some people are really neat. Uh, a lot of people are pretty messy. You might have piles of papers on your desk. Maybe it started out with the ambition of, of being a clean space, and instead you have all these clippings on your desk. So there's no way to look at the news unless you go to the morgue, which is the newspaper library. Uh, you can't Google old stories, so you might keep a lot of clippings for your own reference book on your desk. You have lots of things and stuff uh, all around you. Uh, and you you have a phone, which is your your one piece of technology besides your typewriter you use to get, to get the news. There's no computer, of course, uh, anywhere in the space, not, not for another 10, 20 years at least. Okay. And, you know, depending on the time of day, we may walk into this space and, and wonder where everyone is, right? Because there are times where it's very busy and loud, but a lot of the time the reporters, a lot of empty desks. So where would they be? What are they doing? And how are they doing their job if they're not in this space? Yeah, so you're you're probably going to find that even at a you know evening paper, there'll be a lot of people who are gone, you know, in the in the early afternoon, going out and hunting down stories, or going to the courthouse, or to, in some cases, um, the various local government buildings in town. You know, if it's a small town, you're at the mayor's office slash the city council slash all the other offices in one big building. In a typical town, in Indiana, for example, you have that around one city square. Um, so you might be at a place like that, or you might be at the scene of a crash, or you might be, if you're lucky, traveling maybe someplace farther away if you're a correspondent or maybe you're a columnist, um, but you're supposed to go out and get the news and bring it back. So you're not really supposed to be there for part of the days, which is part of the fun of being a reporter. You don't have to be there all the time. Well, and in this era, and this is something that I, I was learning about while I was reading your book, is really interesting, There were uh, right, the idea of the leg man, right? The person yeah. who is out of the office and that's kind of where they do not just, you know, their, their news gathering, but that's where they do some of their composing in their heads and then over a phone. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about this new position? There's, there's a section of the office or of the newsroom where we're going to see these folks called the rewriters and what that relationship is all about. Cause that's something I don't think we have, or maybe we do have parallels to um, in, in modern media that, that I'm just not thinking of right now. Yeah, so this was a, a kind of job that you had because you had a, a machine, a, a telephone, a technology that would allow you to get news from far away, but you wouldn't be able to type it up necessarily unless you had a fancy, fancy portable typewriter, which you could have if you were a correspondent or a columnist. But let's say you don't have that. You have to call your story in from the field. So you race to the nearest phone. Sometimes you have uh, accidentally, in air quotes, broken the phone. Uh, on purpose. So your your rival from the other paper, maybe the morning paper or the evening paper, they can't get to the phone and make it work. Or you paid a kid to literally read the Bible uh, into the receiver <laughs> until it's time for you to use it. Anyway, you get to the phone, you call your story, and that means basically you you do what you just said, uh, Ken. That's really you know right uh, prescient there. You previewed what I was going to say. Um, you've written your story in your mind a little bit with a, a beginning, middle, and end. You know, and that awesome inverted pyramid style so that you have your facts that are not quite as important toward the bottom 
on the other side in the newsroom, the few folks that would be there would be a few senior editors and, of course, these rewrite people, rewrite staff who would take your stories as a leg man and they would go ahead and rewrite them for the paper, sometimes for that very afternoon. So who else do we see in this room, right? If we've got this big, big room full of reporters, I do see some offices sort of lining the edges of this space. Yeah. We can talk about them. There's also this weird U-shaped desk in the space. <laughs> and I know sometimes it might be a different shape, but if we've got all these reporters in here, are these also reporters? Who else is in this big open space? Yeah, so the few folks who would be there for sure in the middle of the day you know, would be the copy editors who are often older reporters who have transitioned into a, a more sedentary role. They might have older children or maybe they, they are literally gimpy. They have, you know, they have getting to a point in their career where they can't race around anymore and they might have injuries or health conditions, mm-hmm. but they're all very spry in their mind, of course. Uh, and so they're there to do the, the fact checking uh, and uh, a lot of the just basic grammar and spelling fixes. Uh, this role was kind of a versatile all-purpose role. And nowadays, you know, we, we miss them when we don't have them as much, uh, but they're, they're, they're still there, still around, uh, and they're still really important, especially at a a magazine, you know, or other kind of long-form journalism place, even online, you really need those kinds of folks. But anyway, um, the U-shaped desk would have a copy chief on top. Uh, he, or sometimes she, would be supervising their copy editors below them around the edge of this desk, and they would pass the copy toward the copy chief, heading toward the top of the U, or in some cases, a W or a T or any other kind of letter shape. Uh, and that would get one last check by the copy chief. So what about how this space is laid out then? So we've got these desks scattered around. One of the really interesting things your book focuses on is the spatial relationships that exist within the space of the newsroom. How, how does that hierarchy play out in terms of who is sitting where among the reporters in relation to some of the other spaces in the newsroom? Yeah, this, this, so you're asking kind of how, how the shape mattered, you know, for the, for the people working in it? Sure. And, yeah. and, you know, does does where you're sitting in the newsroom denote anything about your your oh, yeah, status yeah. or hierarchy within the organization? Yeah, definitely. If you're in the corner away from the editor, you're probably not that important. You might be a cub reporter, which is not a bear in the form of a reporter, but a literal uh, newbie uh, cubby. And, and your job would be really to impress your bosses. You're sort of a super intern. You graduated <laughs> from being um, somebody who runs errands, to maybe doing some light writing. Or you, you might still be doing that role and you might have a desk you share with you know, four or five other kids. And they often were younger people who were in high school or sometimes in college. Um, but the closer you were to those edges of the newsroom, the more important you were. So, so the star reporters would, would be sitting maybe if you have the picture of my book on page 24, um, the illustration of my brother-in-law, Jeremiah Moon, who does such good illustrations uh, in the spirit of Stephen Beastie, that great British illustrator with those three-dimensional cutouts. Mm-hmm. Um, the folks toward the edges near the editors, they would be the stars and they would be the ones you would want to be like. So you'd be looking across the sea of desks, kind of envying them and their proximity to the editors and thus the good stories and some of the, the nice bennies you would have if you had been there for a while. Okay. Now, what about these rooms along the the, the edges of, of a oh, newsroom yeah. then, right? Who is occupying those spaces? You know, one of these one of these rooms, I'm sure, uh, compared to the others, which often have windows with people who can, you know, then they can look over the newsroom, but there is one room that is definitely not, <laughs> doesn't have a window, right? The dark room. Yeah. So w- who's working in there? What's the relationship in particular with the reporters out in the in the bullpen? Yeah, so that's the the layer of the photographers, and they have their own space and their own customs and culture uh, in that in that space. They would be developing photographs, which my hipster listeners, you know, they still do. Uh, you can still <laughs> do that. You can still develop your own pictures, and it's really fun. It's really messy, but it's really beautiful to see your own photography come to life right in front of you. Um, 
that would be dark because you don't want any any light uh, in there to to spoil the development of the photos. So you'd have red lights on in that room, for example. So you wouldn't ruin the the developing images. Um, but that that would be a special space. And there's also one group of people who are, you don't see who are not in any spaces. These are women. They would be maybe in a different part of the building. Uh, or if they did have a room, it would be completely separate from the newsroom for the ladies section or ladies page of the paper. Why separate? Well, they thought that the women couldn't handle the rough and tumble craziness of the main newsroom. Uh, and that, of course, would go away, right? Over time, uh, after World War II, especially women would not go back to the home. They would stay, they insisted on saying, which is great. Uh, and the and the unions would help them with that. Um, so you have maybe, maybe a few more women in the newsroom than you would before. And maybe you would you would take off the door from its hinges and it would be more open to the newsroom. It would be literally more accepting for your presence to be there as a woman reporter and not just working on on the women's section, which, of course, is still important. Kim Voss uh, talks a lot about this with her work on female food columnists and, and society reporters. And so does Candy Carter Olson. Uh, so these are really important people. Um, but they, yeah, they had a kind of a gender segregated newsroom right on through the 1930s in most big newsrooms. What about some of these other offices then that are ringing the edge here, right? We have editors, yeah. but when we when we say editor, that that's a broad term, right? What what sorts of editors do we have inhabiting these spaces, and what's what's their relationship with the reporters that they that they're looking out on? Yeah, so there'd be three top dogs in the newsroom. Usually, there'd be the city editor, you know, sometimes called the uh, metro editor, a few other variations. But that person is basically your immediate boss as a reporter. And that person may have just come from the reporter's ranks themselves. Uh, but that's kind of the intermediary between uh, the reporting crew and the copy editors and what's called the managing editor. And that person is really the day-to-day captain of the newsroom, sort of the first mate of the newsroom. Um, and above him, and sometimes her, there'd be the editor-in-chief. And this person would be thinking about how to deal with the publisher and the owners and that kind of thing. And would look at the paper, you know, as a finished product, but wouldn't maybe be as involved as the managing editor and city editor in the day-to-day production of the newspaper. Uh, and there was a joke, of course, if you had a, a title that had the word editor, it may, it may not mean anything unless you had a, an actual paycheck to go with it. So there'd be <laughs> lots of various kinds of quote unquote editors in charge of aviation news, you know, or space news later on or science news, but those folks were more an editor name only, um, the arts editor and, and the editorial folks, uh, they have a little bit more leeway and they are actually able to kind of speak as equals with the high mucky mucks of the newsroom. Um, but they're off in their own corner, the editorial uh, people, for example, because they're supposed to be writing opinion columns that represent the voice of the paper anon- anonymously without any bylines. Okay. And uh, one of the things your book really focuses on is the evolution of, of labor relations, right? Unionization yeah. throughout this era. And as a consequence of that, right, we can really see the relationship between the editors and the reporters change. What was it like in terms of that, that boss-employee relationship at the beginning of this era compared to maybe when we're hanging out in this newsroom now in the 1950s? Yeah. Yeah, by the time you get to the mid-century, it's a much more white-collar job with a lot more respect for, I think, different kinds of news workers and less petty firings and people being tossed out at, at the whim of the editor or managing editor. Um, early in the century, though, you were paid by space, sort of by word, if you were like a blogger today, uh, and you could be fired much more capriciously. There's all kinds of infamous stories of people being canned uh, because they were either late or maybe they were early and they caught the eye of the editor or they didn't do a good job on one story. So it was a much more, much more um, uh, capricious is the word I'll use again, uh, space earlier in the century before World War One, 
after both world wars though all these people have been drafted and served in the military and they had a, a taste of some you know some authority and some uh, responsibility i think you know both women and then later on people of color and of course your what your standard white guys uh they all they all had a taste of some of that um more distributed power and i think the union really played into that and let them stand up for each other uh so you have a much more collaborative space even the fact you would walk in uh to that that news briefing or that 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 news conference and you had a chance to kind of pick your story for the day and, and to ask questions that was a pretty late innovation uh at a typical newsroom but a really important one for for democratic power sharing in that space well, I, it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I wanted to ask you, you know, I find it absolutely fascinating how much more collaborative the entire enterprise oh, became yeah. during the period you're talking about. And that includes things like the relationship between photographers and reporters, whereas oh, yeah. early in the era, your book says that the photographers were really looked down upon and, <laughs> and not really seen as peers by the reporters, whereas by the end of the era, it's much more a collaborative relationship. Is, is that come out of a, does that come out of a similar place, a similar shared experience in the war? Oh, definitely. You, you have your news photographers who get to earned some fame, you know, themselves, people like Jack Price, who wrote a column about photography for editor and publisher and published two books about news photography, talks about how they went from being kind of these scallywag political figures who were kind of proud in their outcastness to, you know, being part of the team. And, and that team of reporter and photographer, we do lament its loss, you know, and, and it's something that should be uh, fought for. I think it's a really powerful combination, but that's a pretty late innovation in the 20th century, really only by the late 1940s and 50s do you have a photographer with one reporter before it would be one photographer would be sent out to take a lot of pictures you may never see your photographer you may not even talk to them as a, as a fellow worker or even as a fellow person but having to spend all day long maybe in a radio car with your photographer you know by the time you get to the mid-century your photographer colleague wouldn't be quote-unquote your photographer anymore you would have much more of a co-equal dynamic with your with your colleague who is a photographer and instead of being kind of an outcast uh you are much more of a comrade in arms. And Jack Price, who wrote about this phenomenon during the era, uh, would talk about how, you know, eventually these photographers were, were thought of as, as like reporters. They were doing their own journalism. And the war effort, I think, really also emphasized the value of imagery. And in the battle with television, photographers also become more important and with radio. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm struck by one thing after we've sort of looked at this newsroom, and that is how different it looks than today's newsroom. In some yeah. ways, I'm sure, you know, it's, it's certainly the same, but it, today's newsroom certainly looks smaller and feels smaller. What What's lost and gained in the transformation from the newsroom that we had at, you know, mid-20th century to the newsroom of today? Yeah, so that's a great question. The, the newsrooms of today are much more like the newsrooms of the 19th century or maybe even the 18th century. They're small and more mobile. They might be someone's house, like they were when they first began to be that kind of space um, at the, at the hyper niche, uh, hyper vertical uh, news organization called geekwired.com in Seattle, which covers the tech industry. There is a small office in Ballard. They do have as a newsroom, but many of the reporters and editors work from home or work in coffee shops. And so you, you have a, a space you can still go to, which is important for a shared identity, I think, but you might lose out on, on that in some places, which don't, don't have a you know a, a central gathering spot anymore and i think you lose some of that uh collective identity even if you can collaborate with all kinds of cool digital tools um and work together uh on slack for example which is actually a lot of fun you can have your own channels and things it drives bosses totally crazy and reminds you <laughs> of the newsroom and maybe gather around the urinal to gossip about your boss which is where you, go, <laughs> where you went to pee and and then chit chat um but uh 
but there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that you don't have, you know, so that that can be bad too. And I I do hope there is always some kind of newsroom space, even a small one is good. Maybe you don't need acres and acres of desk, uh, but some kind of space is good. When I was the advisor at my last university's campus paper, um, there they had a space. It was in a in a basement. I I moved them up to a basically a glorified closet. They had a window, <laughs> but they were near the action. They were near the faculty, and they they could be in there at least a few of them at a time. And I think that made them feel like part of the team. And so I hope that even with small newsrooms, we can retain some of that teamwork and some of that collaboration that I think is, is really there uh, in these spaces. So in your book, you say along those lines, you say that the newsroom is both a physical space and a symbolic one. Uh, the quote was a pragmatic place and an idea. So if, if we could walk away understanding one thing about this place in this era, what would that one thing be? Yeah, so the newsroom was a was a place that reflected its times. It was a primarily white institution for many years and a primarily masculine one, you know, sometimes toxically so. Uh, but over time, it reflected society's changing norms and integration and became a, a space that women and people of color could be at. Uh, and I, I hope that the ideal of the newsroom, the idea that you could work together to solve complicated problems and, and advocate for transparency, I hope that part sticks around. I don't think we need some of the uber macho uh, in in league with those who are already in power vibes that you get sometimes in these spaces. Uh, the good parts, I hope, the soul of journalism parts that I, 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 I'm quoting Walter Williams here, those parts, I, I hope those continue. Um, and, you know, I'm hopeful that there will be newsrooms, even if they're tiny, tiny ones, or they are coffee shops. And that that's okay, because we're going full circle with the newsroom. So I, I tried not to end on a note of despair in my book. I try to end on a note of like, putting these spaces in context because they were the product of their eras. They were industrial journalism buildings and newsrooms. And we still have journalism, but it's not maybe industrialized like it was. Sure. So th that brings us to the last question. And and we always like to ask the same final question of our guests. So I'd like, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say here. Why, in your opinion, does journalism history matter? Oh, it matters because it shows you how journalism is and what it may may yet turn out to be. I think knowing its past informs its present in really profound ways. It doesn't repeat itself, of course, but it might really help you understand why it's so hard to recruit and retain people of color or why it's still really tough for women to make the same amount of money as men or why making unions a thing is, is so tough in some newsrooms and in some journalism organizations. Uh, and so I think journalism history really helps you understand current events and problems in a better way, at least gives you some some grounded thinking about uh, problems that we face in our own moments. Absolutely. Well, I, I really enjoyed our conversation today, Will. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Again, if you haven't read it, the book is The American Newsroom, A History, 1920 to 1960 by our guest today, Dr. Will Mari. So thanks for tuning in and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. That's all one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Ken Ward, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. <laughs>